This is History West Midlands. While much is known about the more famous members of Birmingham's Lunar Society, others remain shadowy figures at the edge of this illustrious circle. Now, thanks to the work of Canadian researcher Kristen Schwantz, we're learning much more about one of them, James Keir. As Kristen tells our publisher, Mike Gibbs, Keir was a pioneering chemist and industrialist who is emerging as an important but forgotten figure of the Industrial Enlightenment in the West Midlands. Kristen, I have to start by asking, if I may, why am I talking to a Canadian <laughs> about James Keir, a man of Scotland and of the Industrial Revolution here in Birmingham and the Black Country? Yes, well, I do have to give credit to my postgraduate supervisor, Professor Trevor Levere. He's the one who got me very interested in the Lunar Society of Birmingham in general. And from there, I think I just started getting interested in Kier specifically because things have not been written about him. And it got me thinking, why? And I guess I love a treasure hunt. And I started to think that maybe there was a lot more out there than people have been able to find about Kier. So I worked on my master's writing a paper on Kier, and I pretty much thought that was it. I didn't think there was anything left to say about Kier. I wrote about his chemical works at Tipton. I handed in my paper and thought I was done with Kier. Even my PhD proposal was very much looking at chemistry within the Lunar Society in general. But the more I started to research, I realized there was more to say about Kier, things that had been missed, archives that maybe had not been thoroughly looked at specifically for Kier. And the more I found, the more it kind of fed my curiosity and my interest, and I wanted to know more about him. You mentioned the Lunar Society, but when we think about the Lunar Society, we think about Bolton, Watt, Priestley, yes. Wedgwood, these other big names. I don't remember reading or hearing much about Keir. Does that mean he wasn't particularly important amongst these luminaries? He was very important, but as you said, not much has been written about him. You find a lot of times when historians are writing about the Lunar Society, they sometimes have a sentence that Keir was important, but we don't have much to say about him because of a lack of sources that have come down. And so he was very good friends with Priestley, very good friends with Bolton and Watt, even working at the Soho Manufactory between 1778 and 1780. So very close. We know that he attended many of the meetings. Of course, we don't have minutes from the meetings, but based on letters between Lunar Society members, Kier is often mentioned, but it's when we want to get into the details that we, we often lack specific things about why he's being mentioned. And that's what I was really interested about. I want to know more about his works. I want to know more about why he was at Soho. So seeing those references, I guess, scattered, I wanted to put them together and see if there was a greater narrative within the context, of course, of the Lunar Society, as you can't isolate the work that Keir was doing, specifically in chemistry, apart from these other men. So... Introduce James Keir to people like me who know nothing about him. Sure. Well, James Keir was born in Scotland in 1735, and he was the last of 18 children. And we know that he lost his father early on. He was only eight years old when his father passed away. 
But we know that he stayed where he was born, around there, and he went to high school in Edinburgh and also university there and took some courses in medicine. And we believe this is where he got some of his early chemical training under Andrew Plummer at the University of Edinburgh. So after he left, it seems that he was seeking adventure and uh, it was the Seven Years' War. He joined the military and ended up in the West Indies, we think for several years. We don't have many letters from this time. There's more a reflection written by his daughter about his recollections being in the West Indies, getting very sick. He actually almost died at one point and he prescribed some sort of interesting concoction for himself that revived him apparently, and he made it back. By the 1760s, I believe, uh, the mid-1760s, he was in Ireland, and at that point he decided to sell his captain's commission, and he wanted out of the military to pursue, according to him, uh, philosophy and chemistry at his own leisure, and he wanted to specifically go back to the chemistry that had interested him when he was in Edinburgh. Did he maintain that interest by going back to university or what? Mostly through reading. And we see at this time in Ireland, when he had just sold his captain's commission, he settles with a friend of his, Richard Lovell Edgeworth, and he has some space there in Ireland, some time to look at a new chemical dictionary that has come out of France. Pierre-Joseph Macaire, who was a French chemist in 1766, had written a definitive dictionary of chemistry but it was in French. And Kier thought it would be worthwhile to translate it into English, not only for the benefit of people who speak English, like himself, but also that through the process of translation, he could learn more about chemistry. And it wasn't just translation. He was also adding in many different notes and footnotes. And we can see as we compare the French to the English where Kier is adding in. And he's adding in notes specifically on the rising topic of pneumatic chemistry, which is airs and gases, and also in mining, in mineralogy, Kier's adding in a lot of different notes. Later on in 1789, so at a decade later, he published what he called the first part of a dictionary of chemistry. And this was an ambitious project that Kier started. And it was based a little bit on these previous dictionaries, but it was also a lot of Kier's own work. Sadly, he only got through the A's, so it wasn't <laughs> much of a dictionary. And even though it was called the first part, there were no further volumes of it. What was the state of knowledge of chemistry in the world at that time? It was very much a developing field, and it's even hard to say what the subject of chemistry was because it overlapped with so many different other fields, whether we were thinking about pharmacy, medicine, people who were working in mining, mineralogy, even early geology, even though we wouldn't really call it that at that stage, a lot of them would call themselves chemists or chemists because they were interested in matter and its transformations. So it depended which country you were in, maybe how much access you would have to chemistry. In England, it was more if you studied it on your own. Definitely in Scotland, the universities were teaching chemistry more intentionally as well as some nonconformist academies in England. Um, there was some teaching going on at, at Oxford and Cambridge, but it wasn't really sort of intentional departments. They were teaching chemistry towards an end, whether it was medicine or pharmacy. But it was definitely a developing field. I mean, in the 18th century when Kier lived, it's an era where we sort of see this transformation from alchemy to chemistry, where the field was seen as very... Uh, still sort of maybe secretive in some ways, and 
that people were trying to do things, you know, unlawfully, whether it was changing base metals into gold. But by the end of the 18th century, it's very much a field where it was seen as more respectable. And of course, then into the early 19th century, we do have even the emerging field of professional chemists. So what brought him to the West Midlands? He became very good friends with Erasmus Darwin when he was at the University of Edinburgh. They became close friends and they stayed in correspondence when Keir went away in the military. And so Erasmus Darwin was a very key member in the Lunar Society. And we know that, of course, he's also the grandfather of Charles Darwin. And so when Keir returned to Ireland and then eventually to England, he was trying to pick up old friendships. And it was uh, to Darwin that he was corresponding and saying, is it worth my while to come to where you are, or at least near where you are? Darwin had settled uh, in Litchfield as a physician at the time in the late 1760s. And as he goes there, we see these letters of introduction that Darwin is actually writing to Josiah Wedgwood, the potter, to Matthew Bolton, to James Watt. And of course, James Watt isn't in the area yet. He's still in Scotland, but he's you know, connected with these group of men. And it seems that Keir is interested and he thinks the area of the West Midlands is where he wants to settle down to put some of his chemical principles into practice. And he becomes manager of a glassworks at Amblecote. And it's still quite close to his friends, um, especially Bolton at the Soho Manufactory, but he can stay in touch with them, be doing chemical experiments, even making glass apparatus for some chemical experiments that Bolton is doing. And so that's in 1771 that he purchases the glassworks. And in that year, he also marries Susanna Harvey, who is from the area. And the Harvey family had been known as iron workers for quite a few centuries, I think, at that point. Did that then introduce him to the field of metallurgy, which I think he became eventually well known for? Yes, I believe it did. And even when his Dictionary of Chemistry was published in 1771, at the same time he buys this glassworks where it starts managing it, when people are talking about this publication, they actually refer to Keir as working in the iron mines. And that's something I still haven't quite figured out. And I think it's this connection with the Harvey family. And we do have a record of him trying to sell iron to the Navy at this point. And it's specially treated iron. We're not quite sure what it means. But it is actually put on a ship that's sent to Antigua, and it's tested in the waters there for about two years to see if it can protect the ship from shipworm, uh, these bolts that he made of a special iron. So he is involved in metallurgy at the time. He's also making different types of glass. And we see they were being sold in London. Bolton would order samples, and even some shipments were going up to Scotland at this time. And was he an active member of the Lunar Society at this time? Yes, though at this time we would probably call it more of a lunar circle. It was a little bit smaller. Priestley, Joseph Priestley, the chemist, theologian, natural philosopher, he wasn't in the area at the time. And just looking at people like Robert E. Schofield, a historian who has looked at the Lunar Society in depth, he calls them a lunar circle till about 1775. So these early years when Cures at the Glassworks, we'd still probably just consider it more of an informal sort of gathering and not quite the society that we might consider in later years. So he wasn't just a member of that circle then, he was almost one of the founder members. It seems to be so, but because, of course, records have been lost, it's hard to say. We know he's friends with the key players, uh, Watt and Bolton, and especially William Small, who I haven't mentioned, who was a physician and very good friend of Watt. And the friendship, actually, between Keir and James Watt was facilitated by William 
Small. And it's interesting to see a letter that Watt writes to Small, and I believe it's in 1769, and Watt basically writes to Small, I don't know what to think of Kier. He seems like he might be a good friend, maybe slash partner for the future. I don't know about him, but because you hold him in high regard, so do I. And so it's interesting to see how these members of the early lunar circle were vouching for each other in who should be brought into their friendships and eventually even industrial partnerships. And Kia, at some stage, goes to actually work at Soho with Bolton and Watt, does he not? Yes, and it's interesting. I think in official histories, uh, Kier is called a manager from about 1778 to 1780, a manager of Soho. And we do have a letter, actually, after Bolton passes away in 1809, Kier writes to Bolton's son and says, I know a lot has been surmised about my time at Soho, but it was actually quite an awkward period. And it seems he wasn't very happy there. Bolton, I think, was supposed to extend some sort of offer of partnership that never really happened. So on the surface, I think Kier made it look like everything was okay, but a lot of his suggestions, specifically in the administration of what was going on in the business at Soho, were not really taken seriously by Bolton, and there was no official offer that they should partner together. I think Kier imagined that he would be some sort of chemical support to Bolton, particularly after William Small passed away in 1775, and Small had been working with Bolton, advising him on certain chemical processes for the what was going on in his works, specifically with metals. And since that never really occurred, by 1780, Kier was ready to leave and start his own chemical works. And some of the letters in 1780 between Kier and Bolton, they're a little bit sad. We can see that there's a miscommunication between them. Bolton is sad about a loss of confidence in their friendship, I think. I don't think the other members maybe saw it. Even Watt, I think, was completely unaware of maybe this sadness between them. And you mentioned that Kier wanted to start or did start his own chemical works. Can you expand on that? Yes. Yeah, so he went out to Tipton and he leased some land that had been used as an ironworks. It was called Bloomsmithy Mill. And he really wanted to be developing the alkali industry. And alkali soda, as they would also call it, was really key, specifically making soap, uh, I believe in bleaching and, and dyeing as well. So it was a key substance needed in a lot of the industries, particularly around the area of the West Midlands. And it's something he'd been working on with Watt, actually, for about a decade. They'd been trying to develop a system of basically breaking down sea salt so that they could take out what we would consider the sodium component of it. And they could be using that to make their alkali. So for 10 years, they hadn't had much success. But he ends up using what we believe to be these waste sulfates from industries around the area. And he would take these waste sulfates and he would take out uh, the sodium component for his alkali. So that was his main interest in starting it. But we see the business expand 1780 onwards. Then he starts using the alkali for his own soap making. And then he gets into white and red lead being used by uh, potters and other industries in the area. And was Watt still involved in the business at that time or not? He wasn't, no. It seems that they wanted to take out a patent together 
And these letters are also very fascinating, but it never really materializes. So the only partnership that Kieran Watt had was quite brief, but it was in the letter copying machine that Watt patented in 1779. And there's, of course, a lot of chemistry involved in the paper quality and the inks. And we know that Kier was a quarter partner in the business and that Bolton was also a quarter partner with Watt holding half the partnership. So at this time was the soda works, the alkali works, his sole interest, or was he maintaining his interest in metallurgy at the time? While he was at Soho, he did patent an alloy of copper, zinc, and iron. And this seems to be a joint project with Bolton, here taking out the patent all by himself, but Bolton said that was okay. And they jointly did try to sell it to the Navy for sheathing bolts and nails. And again, this is the big era of copper sheathing the hulls of ships. And so Kier takes this interest with him when he goes to Tipton as well. And we can see records of even this metal. There's a manufactory in London that we can trace. And this is a connection with William Playfair. Then Playfair was also another Scotsman who came down to work at the Soho manufactory. And that's how Kier met him. So there seems to be a partnership with Playfair, specifically for the metal, not for the Navy anymore, because that was a big failure, but in actually making the metal for windows, decorative fan lights over doors, and sash windows. And this manufacturer actually can be traced until 1822, and that's even beyond Kier's death. We know that it was passed on to someone else. So this is a little separate than Tipton, but at Tipton, we know they're also making these window sashes of this specific alloy of copper, zinc, and iron that was distinct and was patented by Kier. By this time, then, Kier must have been a substantial industrialist a substantial figure in the West Midlands. Was he making a lot of money? It's hard to tell, actually. We can have some records about how much he was paying to the excise officer who would come around on his soap, how much soap he was producing. So we have some figures, and they're quite high. It seems like he's being successful or how much he is producing. There's even an interesting letter from Erasmus Darwin where he says that he's bought 500 bars of soap, some for his friends, and he gives the names of the friends. And this letter is actually Darwin writing to his son and saying, I can hook you up with all this this soap if you would like. So we can glean information from letters about how successful he is. We think that his only daughter, Amelia, did inherit quite a bit of money. But Kier's partner, Alexander Blair, who he initially leases Tipton uh, alongside, Blair seems to be having some gambling issues, and even there's family issues with Blair. And so that might have caused some financial issues with Kier. But overall, it seems like he is quite successful, specifically with the alkali and the soap making. Outside industry, how important a figure was Kier, if at all? Well, he was definitely interested in, in reading and, and writing. So we're able to track a lot of his thinking, I guess, through the things that he's writing. So we know that he wrote three papers for the philosophical transactions. And those papers came out of his industries. So he's writing about sulfuric acid. He's writing about glass. He's also writing about iron. And so those were published. They were seen as significant contributions of knowledge within the Royal Society. And he becomes a fellow of the Royal Society. 
1785, which is the same year as Bolton and Watt. That's very interesting as well. It was sort of this cohort of industrialists coming through and becoming uh, these fellows of a society. He also writes a few treatises on gases that accompany his dictionary. I should say his dictionary even went to a second edition. It was so popular. Uh, there's actually a letter that talks about his first dictionary had almost sold out in London in the 1770s, and he wants to publish another one because a fire destroyed the final copies that hadn't sold. And so he writes to Pierre-Joseph Macaire in France and says, hey, I heard you've been publishing your second edition. Can I see some of your notes so I'm not just republishing what I've already written? And this is about 1776. And so Kier publishes again with some additions from Macaire and this very interesting correspondence between a French and British chemist at this time. And Kier wasn't just interested in writing about chemistry. We know he wrote even biographies, specifically of Thomas Day, a member of the Lunar Society who passed away at quite a young age. And Kier, in honor of him, wrote a biography. And he wrote a short biographical piece on Bolton as well when Bolton passed away. He has some interesting political tracks as well after the, I believe it's the Church and King riots in Birmingham in 1791. And he writes some political pieces in support of Joseph Priestley, whose house had been destroyed in these riots. So we see he dabbles in a lot of different topics. He's even a poet. There's this interesting poem about the phases of life that Kier writes Right before he passes away, he's probably about 82 years old, and he writes this beautiful poem. Yeah, so we see he's a thinker in a lot of different fields, whether it's life, poetry, even writing a bit on his experience in the military. He writes several military treatises as well. At what age and where did Keir die? So he passed away when he was 85 in 1820. And we know his final about decade of life, he had rheumatism and he was not well. There are some letters between him and some friends where they're asking him, would you like to come dine with us? And he's not sure if he's going to get out of the house. So we think probably in those final years, between about 1810 to about 1820, he probably wasn't doing too much. 1811, he did turn over the business to Blair entirely, his partner, and Blair and his sons, Blair's sons, carried on the business to 1815 at Tipton. But beyond that point, Keir doesn't seem very involved, at least he's out of the business. So during those final years, Amelia, his only daughter, had married and was having children, and so we can see that these grandchildren were bringing much joy to his life in his later years. He had lost his wife, Susanna, I believe in 1802, and Amelia describes her passing as a very tragic event. She mentions it's the only time that she saw her father just weeping and that he wore her wedding ring around his neck for the rest of his life. And where can we find his grave? Sadly, I don't think we can find it. I tried. <laughs> He's buried at All Saints Church in West Bromwich, probably underneath the car park, I was told now. He was very specific. He didn't want any monument erected in his honor. And this is Amelia, his daughter, writing about this and said, my father was very modest. He didn't really care much for who did what. He didn't want to be praised for things he had done. He just said it was good that it had been done and that was sort of enough. Outside a group of historians who are really studying the lunar society and lunar circle at this time, Keir seems to have disappeared. Why is that? Unfortunately, it is difficult to trace Keir in the historical 
records. There was a house fire in 1807, we know, at his house in West Bromwich. And we think a lot of the papers were saved at that point. Sadly, there was a later fire in 1845, long after his death, but a lot of the papers were held at Amelia's house at Aberley Hall. And this fire did destroy a lot of family records. And that is mentioned in newspapers and in their own letters at that point. So many letters have been lost. And the problem is that we're trying to basically find letters that are scattered now in archives. So letters that were sent to Kier have mainly been lost. And the goal is to go out and find letters that had been sent to other people and have still been gathered. Secondly, unlike Watt and Bolton, Kier did not have a son to pass on his business to, but also a son who might sort of memorialize the father. And so that's also why he's lost, I believe, in a lot of historical records. What sort of man, then, do you think you have discovered in James Keir? I think he was definitely well-learned. He was curious about the world around him. A contemporary called him the wit, the man of the world. He seems to be the life of the party, at least from some of the descriptions of those who saw what happened at some of the Lunar Society meetings. It seemed that he was very friendly and outgoing, but that he could also be very thoughtful and that he was a deep thinker as well. I feel like he would be interested in other people, that he would be humorous, I guess, in a way, but also very in tune with what was going on in the world intellectually and just creative in a lot of different areas of his life. Would you have liked it? I think so. I feel like I've studied him enough that I know him, (laughs) at least through his letters. You just get this picture of him, and I feel like I would want to talk with him for hours. Christian, thank you so much for your time and thank you for introducing us to James Keir, this forgotten almost man of the Lunar Society, the Lunar Circle. And as you have described him in an article which accompanies this podcast, a true Renaissance man. It's my pleasure. And good luck with your future search. Thank you so much. You can read more about James Keir in an article written by Kristen on our website at www.historywm.com. There you will also find films, podcasts and articles about Birmingham's Lunar Society. And you can order the fascinating book by award-winning author Jenny Uglow, Lunar Men, The Friends Who Made the Future. It's available free of postage and packing. Also visit our unique resource, Revolutionary Players, offering open access to digitised images, books, documents, maps and more contemporary materials about the Industrial Revolution in the English Midlands at www.revolutionaryplayers.org.uk.